Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson, as I'm sure you'll remember. And I'm Ben Mitchell. And yes, welcome to a very special best of Squiggly Podcast. For as it turns out, the day of this upload marks the two-year anniversary of said podcast. And what a delight it's been. It was also a great opportunity for, for myself and yourself to get together and, and discuss these, uh, these animators and, and the work that's currently going on in, in the animation world. What I particularly enjoy about this whole deal is the way we've been able to engage with the animation community in the UK and uh, really at this point internationally. So the following is an assortment of mini highlights that we originally put together last year for a sampler CD to promote ourselves at various festivals and conferences and the like. And uh, obviously each episode of this podcast that we do is usually longer than your average CD will run antiquated medium though it is so it was kind of uh, tricky to put it together but in general it went down rather well we may very well put together a volume two so uh, in the meantime sit back have a good old-fashioned listen to some of our favorite moments from the squiggly animation podcast so down the sea last year 2012 Steve, you got to chat to two people who had just put together a film that was going to accompany Wreck-It Ralph, I believe. That's right, yeah. A Disney film called uh, Paper Man, subsequently won an Oscar, and uh, very well-deserved. And a, a sweet little tale it was. Yes. Of a guy who can't throw for shit. <laughs> <laughs> he was crap at throwing paper planes. Thank God they all developed that Disney sentience yeah. as things are known to in Disney films. Here's our interview with Christina Reed, the producer of Paperman, and John Cars, the director of Paperman, the Oscar winning Paperman. It's very, I suppose, you could call it retro. It's got a retro look and retro feel. The character design somewhat reminds me of um, a classic sort of 60s um, Disney. Perhaps uh, George's face looks a little bit like um, Roger, slightly. In the He's build. a bit Roger-y, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like Roger. Everybody likes Roger. He's an amazing milk hall design. Um, there's a lot to learn there if you start deciphering like what it is that he's doing and he has such good taste. Ultimately the character design in its final form was done by this guy Shiyun Kim who's just a brilliant character designer and he's really the guy that brought the, the calligraphic line into the design. But um, Glenn Keane was a huge influence and a huge help in getting Meg figured out and the, just the proportions and, and I think what we what we learned on Rapunzel getting that character with such big eyes and how do those big eyes like fit in that skull that are like the size of baseballs we learned a lot on that about how to keep that appealing and how to have that all work together and, and Meg has similar proportions with those big eyes and um, but I mean, design-wise, I wanted them to feel like they could be right for each other. Like, he had to be kind of humble and like a real guy, but not too handsome and not too ugly. And then she had to be, like, really cute, but not so beautiful that she would seem, like, out of his league, you know? Right. When they meet at the beginning, they, they should already feel like they are a match, you know? When you do a short at Disney, you're running in between the big feature productions. And 
John and I would take this sort of on the road at Disney and show people what we were doing and present it in various forums. And what was amazing is people would just gravitate to our project. So Glenn Keane wanted to come and do some tests. And she and Kim, who's a very in-demand character designer for our features, would come and help us. And over time, it just picked up this momentum where everybody was sort of wanting to know what was happening and yeah. how can I help and what can I do and do you want, do you want me to fix that rig or would you like me to take a shot? Or, yeah, it was, so it's, it's just, like the hot project in the building because it, it, it for a while drew a lot of talent. Yeah. It became the little engine that could. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of exciting. <laughs> and the talent sponge. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. A little bit. <laughs> uh, were Disney worried about the style at all? Was, was there any sort of, uh, we have slightly apprehensive because it's quite a departure from what we're used to um, shot in shorts these days. You know, there were, there were several months where we were exploring what we were going to do and playing with the pipeline and trying different approaches and we hadn't shown John Lasseter. Um, and it got to the point where it was time to show him our first shot and it's that close-up of Meg looking through the flowers of the plane. And I think there was a moment of, we all love this and it's taken us a long time to find it. Yeah. And God, we hope he loves it too. Yeah. And it was just so exciting when he stepped, he watched it loop over and over again with Ted Catmull. And he sort of said, yeah, yeah, I could watch a whole film like this. Right. And we knew we had done it. That's right. We've got a list here by Tanya, who's one of the squiggly writers. She sent it in. I think it's worth sharing with uh, with the podcast people, see if they all, all agree. Uh, it's basically, it's a list of reasons why it's hard to live with an animator. I'm sure people will appreciate this. Now, in this list, is she the animator in question, or does she also live with a, a fellow animator? She is an animator. Uh-huh. I'm assuming, then, that this is what she puts her uh, housemate or significant other through. I would imagine so. I opt for the, the easier choice of just living alone. I mean, the nights are longer, and it just seems so cold. But still. I'm on the list. Welcome back, welcome back then. <laughs> uh, okay, there's no envelope, scrap of paper, or important document in your house that hasn't been doodled on. You're the only adults without kids in line at every children's film. I think the hardest thing for a 27-year-old single man mm. is to go to the cinemas to watch Princess and the Frog. You know? I, you're doing it all wrong. You just make sure you sit at the back, wear a big trench coat, maybe something that covers your face so people don't see that you're a 27 No one's going to bat an eyelid. Yeah, no one's going to be scared there. Not only do they have more books than any other person, but each one weighs the same as a small elephant. I love animation books. Mm. I absolutely... I've got... When they're good. Groaning shelves of animation books. <laughs> Nothing's better than, you know, just coming home with a big book and mm. just opening it and it's interesting and it's well laid out and, you know, it keeps the dogs from barking in my head for a few minutes as I enjoy it. Or, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> barking in your head. <laughs> I think also that the sort of draw of certain specialist bookshops, I now have to make sure I don't go in them anymore culture museums or specialist bookshops certain types of comic book stores that have the art section it's a sort of siren call of you walk in and it's what you want your bookshelf to look like obviously the next point is that you don't actually read any of the books no oh god no <laughs> they're there to look pretty uh polar express scares you more than friday the 13th you don't really know what mocap is but if you ever like a cartoon that has it they've threatened to leave you I've never really been with anyone long enough for them to threaten to leave me over cartoons. One of the biggest 
like fights I've ever had in a relationship, like proper yelling fights, was about the Roadrunner. And it was with an uh, older woman who, uh, I guess, didn't have the same kind of uh, uh, childhood fondness for the Roadrunner cartoons as I had. Her interpretation of the premise of the Roadrunner cartoons was that the Roadrunner was on its own in the desert being pursued by a gang of coyotes who had a series of, you know, whenever one of their plans backfired, it died. Like the rock would fall on it or it would fall off the cliff. And then one of the other coyotes would have a turn. <laughs> and it was just constantly being hounded by all the coyotes in this desert. And like, it's one coyote. It's, yeah. how, do you, how do you not know that? And she's like, shut up. How is he going to survive a fall that high? And I was like, it's not a f***ing David Attenborough, <laughs> you dippy bitch. It's like... <laughs> Leave! Leave now! Get out of my house! But it was one of those arguments that should have been like a, a three-sentence, no way you're out of your mind, end of discussion. It became very important to this person that, no, it was actually about a bunch of coyotes and one red runner and not one... I was like, the character has a name. It got to the point where I'm, I'm like, we're going to go online and look it up. I was like, oh, Jesus, if it has to be that big. It's a cartoon band. <laughs> it's, it's quicker to dumper. The reason we were talking about it was that we were watching... It was on TV. This particular episode ended with the coyote, Wiley Coyote, dressing up as a girl roadrunner. And it backfires on him when a thousand identical coyotes <laughs> appear out of nowhere and it ends with him running out of the... Like, and she looks at me and goes, Eh? <laughs> <laughs> what are the odds? So in conclusion, animators... All kind of sociopaths. We started this podcast a little over a year ago, back in March 2012. On a pretty strong note, we got to talk to one of the biggest names in the UK animation scene. Uh, the head, co-founder, producer, director guy, Peter Lord. Started Ardman along with David Sproxton back in the day. And of course, Nick Park famously came on board and they've become this powerhouse and uh, a sort of British institution unto themselves. Their latest film came out last year called Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. It's a great film. Every detail in the background is, is exquisite. Every little joke. There's no frame that, that isn't hilarious as a consequence uh, in this film. Even the credits at the end. It was very, very densely packed. Certainly, with, with, you know, visual information, kind of a barrage. It said a lot about where they come from and what they do, you know, that attention to detail and their sense of humor about it, and something that extends to Peter Lord himself. So here's some insights from Peter Lord, co-founder of Ardman Animations, about working on the film and working at Ardman. Because I've always thought that, for me, Ardman has never been a design thing at all. You know, it's, it's a, if we have a style, our style, it's a style of spirit, Rather than anything else, mm. not not of not of look, you know, not even of comedy. You know, the, the comedy of articles is very different to the comedy of Monster Comet, and both are different to the comedy of the Pirates. I think, but although you know they, they each, you know, British mm. that that we do have in common, um, and that's as it should be to me. Mm. And so um, that you'd probably say of Pixar as well. I think you know that's what, that's what unites their films. They do very different films. In every way, except you kind of know, you know, the spirit behind them, which is, yeah. which in their case is, is fantastic American, in our case is fantastic British. Yeah. 
um, especially sort of into the the way the stop motion processes have evolved mm. and um, stuff like the three D printers and, and yeah. the the way things are, are sculpted now is. Yeah. Is it all kind of like, is it silicone-based or a type of rubber, or do you still use lots of clay? And there isn't much plastic. There's not much plastic. There's some, uh-huh. for old time's sake. Uh, but the puppets, are, the puppets are largely silicon and latex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, but then again, the, well, they were in um, Chicken Run, too. You know, yeah. they, were, they were largely, um, largely latex and silicon then, I think. Plastic is wonderful material, glorious material, which we love. But usually in its pure form uh, brings all kinds of amazing um, design issues with it. Yeah. Like, you can't have anyone with a stripy shirt, for a start. You know, you, you know, you can't, you, if they made the plastic, you can't do stripy shirts. You can't do pattern. You know. And I always thought from very early on, if there's one thing I assumed about pirates, it was that they had fancy clothes. You know, I didn't think they said, Arr. I didn't think they came from West Country, uh, but I did think they had fancy clothes, because I thought they were... Everyone knows pirates like fancy clothes. And as soon as you said that, as soon as you talked in terms of buckles and gold braid and sword belts and um, sea boots and stuff like that, I knew they weren't going to be made out of plasticine, mm-hmm. that's for sure. But of course, they were, they were all sculpted in plasticine in the first place. The, right. the, we, go from, we, we go from drawing on paper, pencil on paper, to sculpting in plasticine, and then when we're happy with that, then we cast them in, in latex and silicon stuff. Next up, we have Robert Morgan, uh, another stop-motion animator, one of the few directors who can really capture the essence of nightmares. Or if you're a troubled soul like me, basically whatever I see whenever I close my eyes. I think The Cat With Hands, one of his earlier films, uh, was probably the first time I was freaked out at an animation festival. (laughs) I was quite young, and it just... wow. I've always sculpted my puppets in Uh every every film, so that's always me, uh, because I think uh, I don't think anyone would be able to do it in the way that I like it. Right. I think people would probably be able to do it better, but it's not about better, it's about being right. And I think, for me, I have to kind of get my hands on and have it. There's sort of imperfections in it that, that it has to be a certain way. But, you know, with the with the separation, for example, which is a film I did uh, for S4C in, in Wales, and uh, we did a, had a really good budget for that. So we were able to really design, very heavily design um, the look of that film mm. with really, really talented you know, production designer and a really good cinematographer. So, you know, that's you know, collaborating brings its own rewards. Uh, there's ideas, visual ideas in, in, in that film that I would never have thought of. But with the animation, it's particularly it, it, for me, it's, if, if I sculpt the puppets, then I can sort of I feel like I've made them, I feel like they're my characters then, and then, I, then I, that's like my compass. Yeah. Do you consider the films you do to be horror films, or...? It depends on how, on how you categorise horror. Mm, good point. Because a lot of people have a very narrow definition of what horror is. They think of it as ghosts and zombies and, you know, guys with chainsaws and haunted houses and things like that. Mm. Um, so if your definition of horror is that, then I suppose no, not really. But if it's... Uh, I, I personally have a sort of wider definition of what horror is. I sort of it's more to do with a sort of a feeling yeah um, rather than a set of genre conventions I do get that sense from your films as it's kind of underlying 
dread, claustrophobia again, like mounting panic that sort of serves the progression of the film rather well. Is that intentional? And do you think there are certain crucial ingredients to cultivate that atmosphere? It's it's kind of an instinctive thing. I don't. It's, it's hard to sort of. I don't think you can really intellectualize it and plan mm. like this is okay. This is how this, this nightmare is going to progress. I think you're right. I think. I mean, I, I, that's that's great that you said that they, they do achieve that that sort of nightmarish quality because that's definitely something I, I I sort of aspire to. A sort of delirium, I suppose. I would, I would say I'd like. I'd really like my films to achieve that level of feverish kind of delirium yeah. but because nightmares are sort of irrational you have to sort of use an irrational part of your brain to do it so in a way it's, that's why I think I've tried to do Bollier in a sort of stream of consciousness kind of way because I, I felt that, that would you'd tap into that kind of part of the brain more than if you sit down and try and write a script I mean, when I was a kid there was certain animation that scared the bejesus out of me Go on. I'm sure everyone kind of has things from their past that used to give them nightmares. I'm sorry, you know? Ben. I sounded like your uh, I sounded like your psychiatrist there. <laughs> you know, you're talking about your childhood nightmares, and I'm go on. <laughs> Carry on. That's okay. Finally, someone's listening to me. Shall we see what some of the people from uh, from Twitter said about what scared them? Yeah, as kids? yeah, little wusses. This <laughs> <laughs> is J.K. Ricky at Animator J.K.R. My younger cousin used to cry and run and hide when the giant tiger head came up out of the sands in Aladdin. <laughs> that's a good one. That's, a, that's okay. a really good one. Jenny Hall at Jenny underscore Hall. It's Jenny with one N. Pinocchio. Pinocchio? Yeah. Uh, half boy, half puppet, half donkey. Oh, you've crossed a very creepy line there, Disney. Well, well done for the fractions there, Jen. Uh, oh, fair enough. I think I saw her online somewhere. If Pinocchio were released today, it wouldn't be a PG because of the amount of drinking, mm. fighting, smoking. I mean, I mean, if after they after he turned into a donkey, if they'd taken him to you know Tijuana and made him do one of those special shows, then I could see you know making a case for it being <laughs> disturbing. But I, maybe that was the director's cut. I don't know. Uh, Sampo Rask at Sampo Rask on Twitter. Since Spider Baby Mutant Toy. From Toy Story One was horrifying. Yeah, that was a guy who, who, yeah, he had the toys and he reconfigured all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that was yeah, a, okay. quite a, quite a sort of terrifying scene, really, for such a. That yeah, I, I remember being kind of sort of surprised because I, I mean, I wasn't a kid kid when that film came out, but I was like twelve maybe, and and I wasn't expecting it. Mm. Yeah, considering the rest of the film was very sort of bright, lovely pastel colors, you know, and then all of a sudden you get the horror (laughs) of like you know these spider baby mutant toys Um, the baby in Toy Story 3 was pretty scary oh yeah and there wasn't even a spider it was just like an old broken doll big baby but it was just sort of creepy yeah that's very creepy when it's sitting on the swing and it's looking at the moon and yeah and his head turns around (laughs) the director Lee Unkrich is a big fan of The Shining so he did creepy very well but I must say the most creepiest thing Pixar ever did was the baby in the original Tin Toy. In Tin Toy. I saw that like a month ago yeah. for the first time. Kill that thing with fire. <laughs> Jesus. Well, it, it's like the thing from The Ring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I swear to God, I booked my vasectomy the next day. <laughs> I, I'm surprised I hadn't seen it. I must have been aware of it, yeah. but I hadn't seen the whole thing the whole way through. 
And yeah, it's like this baby that I guess because of the whatever system they had in place, the polygon distribution or whatever wasn't quite uh, ready yet for, for realistic human animation this baby looks like its face is melting yeah. and it's got this scary kind of insane manic movement to it you know it's um uh, it's gonna be the last baby that you'll see before you die james rusty hayner at imnas a-e-m-n-a-s scary for animators black cauldron Ooh, meow zing. <laughs> i mean what freaked me out and i'm not sure if it was the animation so much you remember roger rabbit you're going to talk about uh, Judge Doom at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that did terrify me a little bit as a kid. <laughs> but I think maybe because it was a mix <laughs> with live action as well. When he's getting run over by the steamroller. Yeah, yeah, and he's freaking out, and then he comes back to life. Yeah. And it was the... I think it was the actually coming back to life, and he's all flat. Yeah. And he's kind of like, uh, he's trying to find purchase, and he keeps like sort of nearly falling over. <laughs> and it has this really kind of... Harryhausen style creepy stop motion y look to it. Yeah. Yeah, and then he takes out his eyes and he's got the cartoon eyes underneath. Yeah, that film took a turn. It's, yeah. <laughs> well. When he blows himself up with helium and you see his gloves inflating. It was all fun and games until that point. Talking about films produced for kids that, that gave kids nightmares. Yeah. I think Paradorman sort of harks back to the idea that the responsibility f- is with the viewer, really, and they loved it. Zombie madness, and the kids just lapped it up. It was uh, mm. very uh, reassuring to tell that, you know, kids haven't been really desensitised. With that in mind, obviously, I went to interview the guys. Sam Fell did the Tales of Despero. He also directed Flushed Away. Obviously, worked extensively for Aardman, and then obviously went over to work with uh, Chris Butler, who was a storyboard artist uh, who had had this idea for a film in his head for a good 16 years according to him it's a little bit about the history of the two guys so uh, i think we'll just uh, leave it up to them well we both have directed the movie paranorman we it's an american movie made in america with american characters and two uh, brits and two brits <laughs> directing it yeah and it sort of comes from both of us sort or of love of American movies of the 80s, really, you know, like Goonies and Ghostbusters. I think one of the unique selling points of this film is that it's got quite a mature feel to it. It, yeah. it doesn't dumb down to no, the kids right. or anything like that. Yeah. Did yeah. that come natural or...? Yeah. Just for me, no, yeah. I'm very immature. <laughs> um, no, it was, it was intentional because I, I think it's something of a reaction to... Um, a lot of kids' movies, not all of them, but a lot of kids' movies that I do feel take a too polished look at the world. For me, the stuff that I really remember and the stuff that meant a lot to me and shaped me into who I was and made me want to even pursue filmmaking, it was the more challenging stuff. It was the more sophisticated stuff uh, from a story point of view. It was the scarier stuff. Um, so I kind of wanted to go back to that a little. Um, and the 80s was a great era for family movie making. There, there were some amazing movies made in that time, which we both loved. Yeah, a little bit edgier. And what I, my, what I love about this film is that it's great for teen, tweens and teens, actually. And they're a, re- they're a really difficult bunch, you know. The look of the films, it's gorgeous. The team at Leica, they really go, uh, oh, the lead, God, the lead yeah. the way. Do any scenes stick out in your mind as difficult to achieve? Any sort of technical... Yeah. Um, for different reasons, yeah. actually. I mean, there's, there's scenes like at the start of the, the movie, um, something that's actually really simple, like um, a piece of plastic bag fluttering on a chain-link fence. Um, and it's the kind of thing that you don't often see in stop motion, partly because it that whole build exists for one shot, and it's not one shot that furthers the story. 
So ordinarily, that would be the shot to go. You'd have some producer saying that costs too much, it's too much time, and it's not important, get rid. And it was the kind of stuff that we really fought to to keep. There were a lot of locations that exist just for a fleeting mm. moment in yeah. the movie. Obviously, you've got a few homages um, to the films that you yeah. grew up watching and enjoying, but I see a lot of horror comics and there were zombie films that you were telling us about. The overall look of the film, we wanted it to have a kind of a... A messed up kind of rough kind of asymmetry. Look, asymmetry was the kind of key word, yeah. And a lot of it came from the character design, the original character designs. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, yeah. The part part of the appeal, I think, of stop motion is that it is handmade. It, it does have this handcrafted feel. And I think what makes that appealing in the first place is that it's imperfect, and that registers with an, with an audience. Nothing quite beats that hand stitched costume on on a physical object. I think the asymmetry kind of accentuated that. It's purposefully not perfect. Yeah. Um, but then we also, in the colour scheme, we referenced a lot of Italian horror movies of the 70s, um, you know, Fulci and Barva and Argento, and that was because we wanted to do the horror thing, but we wanted to do it in a slightly different way than you've seen before. Excellent. Thank cool. you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Yeah, Thank thanks you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. So here's a delightful, heartwarming tale from Mr. John Creesfalusi of Spumco, Renan Stimpy, George Licker, telling the story of how he inherited Bob Clampett's hormones, amongst other things. Right. Yeah. So uh, it all will become clear. By the way, this is Bob Clampett's chair. Really? Yeah. Wow. This is farted in this. That's uh, quite the souvenir. Yeah. <laughs> how did you get that? Well, when I first came to Hollywood... I wanted to come down to Hollywood. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a Hollywood animator like Chuck Jones and Tex Avery and Walt Disney and all the heroes, right? So I, I couldn't wait to get to Hollywood. So I'm going to Sheridan College and the Christmas break is coming up. And so I got a couple of friends together and, and we all said, hey, let's go down to uh, Hollywood and check out the studios and we'll call up some of our heroes. I got Bob Tampett's phone number from, uh, from my instructor. So as soon as we got off the plane and in the car, we were driving through Venice, and I saw a phone booth, and I just jumped out, and I grabbed the phone, and I dialed Clampett's number, and uh, you know, I'm waiting, ring, ring, all of a sudden, somebody picks up, and this booming, deep, manly voice, hello, answers the phone, and I said, is this the genius? <laughs> and he started laughing on the other line, he said, who's this? And I said, well, my name's John, you don't know me, but I'm your biggest fan in the world, Bob Clampett, you're my hero. Oh my God, they did the wildest, most inventive cartoons ever. Hmm. So he was, he loved us, he was eating us up. So he invited me to come and visit him at his studio. He had a studio on Seward Street uh, where he produced the, the Beanie and Cecil show in the 60s. So uh, we set up the appointment. I went down there, maybe a Tuesday or something like that. I was so excited. And when I walked in, I, John, I'm, uh, I'm Bob's wife, Throaty Clampett. And uh, she apologized because Bob couldn't make it that day because he was sick. But she said, well, come on in. I'm going to give you the tour of the whole place. And then you can sit down and Bob's going to call. And you can talk to him as long as you want. Ask him anything you want. And then when he's feeling better, we'll set up another meeting. I was a little bit disappointed, but it was in all of the office, right? Uh, and all these uh, cells from his cartoons. And these giant sculptures. Porky Pig, Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny from about 1940. The vintage uh, Looney Tunes character. They're just beautiful. But the thing that I was most interested in is I, I saw his desk, right? And there was a chair, an empty chair behind it. And I looked at Sodi and I said, 
is that where the genius sits? She, she was laughing too, right? Because I was a complete dumbstruck nerd fan, right? Like, oh. I said, well, when he calls, can I sit in the genius chair? <laughs> and she thought that was great. So, you know, she sits me down. And I'm sitting, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, man, this chair has got Bob's farts in it. That means some of his hormones might have leaked through. Maybe they'll seep through my genes, and I'll get some of his, you know, his genius genetic material. So I'm sitting there, and Bob calls up. I mean, I'm sitting in the genius chair, and everything. And I got to talk to him for about an hour and a half, or or something like that. And we became great friends, like instantly. Hung out, and did all kinds of crazy stuff together. Cool. Bob Clavett. Amazing. Genius hormones in this chair. So that was Ben there interviewing John Christopher Yes, the, the, the tale of Bob Clampett's chair. I wonder how much that would go for. Because not only has it absorbed all of uh, Bob Clampett's hormones, it's, it's got quite a few of John Kay's now as well. Mm. There's quite a stew bubbling away in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gross. Depict is this sort of supplemental online animation and filmmaking in general competition where the twist is you have to make a film that can't last more than a minute and a half. There has been no greater source of negative energy and anger than this competition over the years. If you work in the animation industry, everyone knows someone who submitted to this competition and either gotten in and not won anything or not gotten in at all. And um, the thing with stuff like Depict, you make a film and it doesn't get into the thing that you make it for necessarily, you still have a film made. You know what I mean? It's always more discouraging when people um, will do something and it doesn't get into the first thing they send it to and then they just say, okay, I'm just not going to send this anywhere else. And that's the end of their animation life. Yeah. And it's just like, well, there are like thousands out there. There's a a line between the people that that are triers and these are the people that Mm. will thrive in some way or form in the industry or the people that expect stuff to be handed to them expect that oh I'll enter my animation to a festival I'm going to win I mean have you entered into these types of competitions in the past I mean yeah um, well I mean quite a few you know you sort of play my sort of thing is like a sort of rule of thirds of like expect to get into a third of the festivals you apply to I don't feel bad when more festivals say no than say yes if you know what I mean because then if you submit it to you know a hundred you'll end up getting into, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50, and that's pretty good exposure, you know. It's certainly enough to get it distributed. Um, I entered a film into Depict, actually, you know, a few years ago. It didn't get in. Um, It got into the Main Encounters Festival the following year. In fact, it was last year's edition, and it was the edition where John Kay was there. So, you know, Some consolation, consolation prize there, then. Um, A couple of friends of mine, actually. In fact, someone who gave me the idea was someone who had done the same thing, did a film for Depict, and then it didn't get in, so she made it a little longer and then sent it to Encounters the next year. In the meanwhile, there's all these other international festivals and platforms that you can send this stuff to, certainly ones that appreciate shorter films over longer films. Uh, A shorter film's going to be more likely to get thrown into a festival program, I think, uh, especially if it's funny. My attitude was always kind of throw as much against the wall to see what sticks, you know what I mean? And that's just what marketing is in in general. You know, I don't really have the marketing brain as far as strategy, but if I was going to say I had a strategy, it would be that. It would be, you know... It's basically the same approach I had to dating in secondary school. (laughs) Because uh, I know guys who were, like, photogenic jock-type guys who didn't get girlfriends until college because they just never talked to girls or they never asked girls out. 
I looked like a potato when I was in my late teens. <laughs> but because I asked enough people out, like, you know, occasionally some of them would say yes, and I'd, I'd, I'd have more of a kind of backdrop of, of human experience to go into university with. That's sort of always been my approach in, in any sort of, especially with creative stuff, applying for jobs, whatever, is more than anything, don't get upset when people say no. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's always going to suck when it's like, uh, I don't know if it's a massive festival like Annecy or something. Well, it stings a bit more, but you're not dead the next yeah. day. You're not a failure. You've made a film. Exactly. You know, you, you know what you're doing. A few years ago, uh, I saw a talk by a producer, David Bunting, and he had this spreadsheet for his film, The Astronomer's Son. Mm-hmm. And he basically made this huge spreadsheet based on entry to festivals, yeah. whether he paid for it, etc., whether they got back in touch with him. And it was seven festivals he entered in before he even got a response. Yeah. And then it was like 20 festivals before he got screening. Yeah. And then it was like 35 before he got an award. And when he started getting awards, they came tumbling in. So perseverance is yeah. it's the name of the game, isn't it? Next up, we have our interview with Barry Purvis. Those who haven't heard about Barry, uh, let's just go through a little bit of his um, bit of his history. Really, he's quite a prolific character in the world of of animation, uh, stop motion animator. He's got a background in the stage before he joined Cosgrove Hall uh, back in the seventies, where he worked on Charlton and the Wheelies. He animated uh, Mr. Toad in Wind in the Willows. More recently, he's worked on Engie Benji, Rupert the Bear, Follow the Magic, Little Robots, Noddy, Fifi in the Flower Tops. And that's before you get onto his own stuff. He's also mm-hmm. worked on his own work, which I think defines him better as an animator. Next, which is my personal favourite. He also worked on a film called Screenplay, which was Oscar-nominated. Rigoletto, Achilles, Gilbert and Sullivan, The Very Models. And he's got two films out at the moment. One's called Plume, and the other is called Tchaikovsky. You should check them both out. They're fantastic. His work, very informed by performance and theatre and music and plays and that kind of thing. It's a recurring thing. I'm aware of Tchaikovsky, but I'm not aware of the other one. What's that? Well, uh, Plume, uh, the the premise basically is it's it's a man with wings. It's it's not an angel. It's not a, a Greek god or anything like that. It's basically a guy who flies around. He meets trouble with these shadowy characters who rip his wings off, and then he has to find a way to adapt and evolve through that. Uh, I don't spoil it, but I think that uh, people should watch it. Excellent. Let's have a listen. First of all, um, Plume. It was it was a long time, sixteen years in the making. I mean, where did the original uh, idea come from? Two things happened at the same time, really. Um, one was the Mars Attacks thing. That was going to be a stop motion. The creatures were going to be stop motion. But eventually, our work was replaced by CG. So the idea of adapting was one thing. And then my mother died at the same time. And I thought, cracky, how do I go on? You know, the most traumatic event. But I've got to get through this. I've got to adapt. And those two sort of ideas of having to adapt after a traumatic, life-changing event, sort of um, got me thinking. You know, I'd been away from England for a year on Mars Attacks, and I thought, I need to make a film, but there's not much money around. I have to make one as cheaply as I can. Okay, I don't need sets, I don't need costumes, I just need puppets. And that's how it sort of happened. And I thought, well, this is quite a nice movement thing. I like the idea that the film is half a ballet and half a rugby scrum. I thought that was quite an interesting animation challenge and I thought well yes I can play with the light and shade they are both sides of him the shadowy characters are what he would become if he 
succumbed to grief or gave up. So that's that was sort of the roots of the film. I do have this obsession with wings. Every film I've done, a character transforms into something with wings or into an animal or a bird. Uh, the only slight differences in Achilles, they uh, turn into bulls and horses, but um, I like this sort of idea of transformation and metaphor of role-playing. And the wings, I don't know what they represent to me, some, either some sort of freedom away from social, cultural, gender, gravity, some sort of true self, I guess, some sort of joy and art and beauty that in this film gets destroyed. Obviously, in Tchaikovsky, you've got the wings in the background as well. There's a, a significant there. We obviously swans. Uh, well, mm. um, you know, I think all drama is about a change of perspective. You know, most dramas, our protagonist either goes to Oz or goes down a rabbit hole or, or changes sex or becomes blind. There's a dramatic change of perspective or he escapes into another place, but he gets a glimpse of his real self somehow through this change of perspective. I think with Tchaikovsky... A lot of his operas and ballets are about a change of perspective. In Swan Lake, the women become swans and they live much truer lives. You know, that's what the swans mean. It, it represents their real self away from the court, away from all that gender, you know, and Tchaikovsky himself being a gay man in, in Moscow, there was a release. The idea of becoming a swan free from society and stuff was appealing. Likewise, with Clara and the Nutcracker, she goes to this kingdom of sweets and she has adventures away from her rather strict family. And while she's having these adventures, she learns about herself and learns she's on the verge of becoming a woman. And in a lot of his operas, there are women breaking social conventions who have been you know, really tied down through society and gender and politics and whatever. And they find a way of living a different life. And I think it's a change of perspective where you can learn about yourself. That's what wings mean to me. And yeah. they're beautiful. So next up, Bill Plimpton. Uh, who some people may have heard of, some people may not have heard of, but those who have heard of him, I'm sure that the majority of them will agree that he's somewhat of an animation hero. One of those figures in this industry that really shouldn't need an introduction, but just in case, he's a tremendously prolific, Oscar-nominated independent animator and filmmaker. His studio, Plimptoons, is based in New York, and he's been responsible for over 40 shorts, countless TV commercials, music videos... And uh, remarkably, nine independent features, six of which have been animated and pretty much entirely on his own with, by industry standards, very, very small crews helping out. So we've talked to Bill a few times for the podcast and for the magazine, and here's a small excerpt of one of our more recent chats. I'm quite a sort of enamored of your design style in general, and I... I really like the character design approach with this film it's it's mm -hmm. it's not a completely new direction but in a sense it's distinct from your other work that's a little more for lack of a better word cartoony and i think like the real solid knowledge of anatomy behind your character design yeah has yeah. been really sort of consistent and it's something that my um father instilled in me when i was very young was the importance of life drawing and a sort of anatomical awareness and that kind of thing but i found depressingly that a lot of animators and illustrators don't really like to do that. They, they're kind of not into life drawing or they find it too much of a challenge. And uh, I was perhaps hoping for the benefit of those people, uh, you could talk a little bit about how important you found it to your work. 
Yeah, that's a really wonderful comment. I'm glad you brought that up because um, for me, life drawing is, is the key. Uh, I still go to life drawing classes. I like to experiment with different um, different techniques, different looks, different styles when I go to life drawing. And this film, I, I really wanted to try a different direction. I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, I don't know if you, in England, if you know this artist, he's an American artist named Thomas Hart Benton. Mm-hmm. And he would take uh, shapes, although they're na- anatomically correct, he would really stretch them and kind of play with them and, and almost turn them into um, organic shapes. And so it's, it's, it's even though it's, it's realistic, it's, it's very twisted and, and, and exaggerated and stylized. And if you look at some of his work, you can definitely see that I, I saw a lot, of his, uh, a lot of his paintings when I did these drawings. Also, another uh, person who I'm sure you're aware of is N.C. Wyeth, mm-hmm. who is uh, one of the great, great illustrators of early 20th century America. And uh, he's another person who, who uses shapes and design uh, elements uh, very powerfully in his illustrations. And since I don't have the, um, the time or the manpower to do very complicated backgrounds and very detailed art, I use a lot of shadows and I use a lot of uh, textures to portray the story where I don't, I don't have the time to do a lot of detailed backgrounds. So I like to simplify it and, and keep it very simple and keep the eye going to where I want the eye to look. Uh, whether it's someone's hair or someone's hand or a gun or a, a sexual part of the anatomy, I, I focus on that. And the rest of it is a little bit out of focus, a little bit blurry, a little bit uh, flat. And that's how I'm able to um, finish these films as fast as I can. Steve, something you may have picked up on in recent correspondence, I had sort of become what my uh, my dear old nan would affectionately refer to as a miserable sack of shit. Um, there was a certain um, <laughs> sacky and shitty vibe coming from you, Ben. I fell into... One of the most like disrespectful, amateurish, wretched commissions of my freelance career. The absolute worst person to commission animation is someone who knows a little bit about it. <laughs> like with so many things in life, Stephen, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Mm. You get, go to an interview, it goes well. You ha- think you have a job that's going to carry on for a while. And then gradually over time, the cracks start to show. I mean, obviously, say a software company is trying to represent their product in a way that will have it sell. They will big up its virtues, all the ways the production pipeline flow will be eased. Things are made more convenient. So if someone is, quote unquote, researching how animation is made, and they look up a software package that's associated with TV animation, and they want to make a pilot, say, for a TV show, they'll look at the software demos completely misinterpret them and then just decide in their heads that they know enough about the ins and outs of it. Here are a couple of examples. One being that computers do all the lip sync for you now. Huh. Wow. And there was just these like little sort of tells that, you know, contracts weren't signed on time. I was told that stuff wasn't received by one person and then I was told by another person that they were collusion to kind of keep me out of the loop of certain things. Oh, my favorite bit, they didn't record the fucking dialogue, which needed to be delivered by a certain date, so I could animate the fucking thing! 
<laughs> of the little and the little they knew about animation. That's probably a big key thing that you do need to know if you want your characters to speak. <laughs> Honestly, it was the one shitting thing they had to do. So to resolve the the lack of a dialogue track, okay. The only way I can sort of like, and I, I says, well, why don't you just do the animation first, and then we'll add the the voices. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> the thing that I think kind of hammered at home the most that I was beholden to literal fucking amateurs was little sort of lines in the script of like, and at this point, this song plays. I'm like, okay. And they would name a song in a band. Let's say there was a shot of like a stairway going up to heaven. Now, let's say you were the most unoriginal dimwit in the world. What song would you have accompany that visual, Stephen? A stairway going up into heaven. It's a head scratcher, ain't it? It's it's got to be Highway to Hell. <laughs> no, no, uh, I, yeah, yeah. The, the, here's the thing, Steve. What you suggested incorporated some element of actual fucking humour. <laughs> People can't see that you're waving your arms around in a kind of in an actual rage. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> have you looked into how much, let's say it was Stairway to Heaven, have you looked into how much Stairway to Heaven actually costs? It's like, what do you mean? Licensing costs. What's that? Well, oh my God. if you want to distribute the film, you, you need to pay for music if they're actual songs. You could get someone to do a sound alike, maybe, but uh, you can't actually have the actual song play without paying, you know, probably quite a lot of money given that it's one of the most famous songs ever! <laughs> this is the point where I start looking around, waiting for fucking Ashton Kutcher to pop out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. On and on this shit goes. Uh, nearly two months. I've never been more relieved to be relieved of a, you know, <laughs> of a project. Uh, you know, when, when I got told, you know, okay, we're not going to carry on with this. Usually that's bad news. Then it got shitty because of, of payment issues and stuff like that. But yeah. we found a compromise that we were sort of happy with. I wasn't over the moon about it, but it was something that I could walk away from. But it's like a, it's the strangest business tactic I've ever seen to make yourselves so unimpressive as professionals and as men, Stephen, as men, <laughs> that a person will accept a stipend to just never have to deal with you again. Now, it's probably not a business tactic you or I would ever employ because we have dignity and self-regard. Mm. <laughs> not an issue with these people. <laughs> Gendy or Gendy, depending who you're arguing with, Tartakovsky was the creator of um, one of my childhood favourites, uh, Dexter's Lab, and... Uh, went on to to co-create the powerpuff girls i love um, the powerpuff girls yeah yeah who's your favorite i probably shouldn't have admitted that quite so loudly and and uh, excitedly there but uh <clears throat> had layers to it dexter's lab what fantastic show and i was getting i used to love dexter's lab were you a fan yeah i liked it it was funny i i liked the sibling acrimony and i thought it was a nice premise i liked that whole era i think of cartoons and the way they were kind of taking what had been established as a sort of 
not a completely shoestring budget, but you know, using uh, not necessarily huge amounts of money to create very effective animation. I thought that was quite well done, you know, with both Dexter and the Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack. I think he's probably all in all a, a big player as far as that more contemporary mainstream family animation. Quite happy with my uh, being being born at that particular time. The sort of uh, the cartoons in a sort of post eighties world were pretty cool. Let's hear from Jendi Tartakovsky on his film Hotel Transylvania. Uh, did you find the transition from working on television through to a feature film such as this? Uh, did you find that difficult at all, or a big change of pace? It was definitely like one of the biggest uh, transitional elements that affected me. I think was the, the pressure, you know. And there's always a pressure in television, and it's more about just uh, you know handling the speed and the quality in this very accelerated time frame, where sometimes. I feel like I barely finished drawing, and then six months later, it's on the air, you know. And then if the episode doesn't turn out so well, you know that there's a next one that hopefully the audiences will like better, you know. So you don't have that kind of pressure to be so amazingly great for every single one when you're doing, you know, whatever, 52 half hours. But when I step into features, it's, you know, you've got one shot, it's got to be funny, entertaining. Uh, beautiful, it's engaging, you get to build this character to sustain, and it's all those things, and you have one opening weekend. You know, because once the movie comes out and it doesn't connect with audiences, you're done. Wow. You know? so, so having that kind of, you know, framework in mind, that, that, that thought was really, I had to make a switch and really, you know, uh, everything in features gets scrutinized a lot more, and I was always trying to balance that with the right amount of scrutiny where we don't overanalyze it, because everything I've ever done in my life was by my gut. Mm. You know, there's, I don't feel like uh, filmmaking has rules. You know, it's really much more guttural. There's some basic rules you could follow, but but generally it's about a gut, a storytelling gut. And um, and I really trusted my gut through my career. And, uh, and stepping into, into this role, there's lots to create a lot of voices. And, you know, sometimes your gut and your confidence and your experience is, is, is all you have. Do you prefer TV or would you say you prefer feature film now you have the experience? Well, I mean, I, I love television because for me, for my experience in TV, has been obviously very fortunate. I've been able to do my own creation after creation. And so that's, I know I'm very, very fortunate and lucky to have, to have that experience. And the great thing about television is you can try something new in every episode. I mean, that's where we wanted to really push ourselves and especially on Sandman Jack where we were trying to do crazy things every, every time. And, uh, but in features, it's the reaction. You know, in TV, we would do something, and, and it would be on TV, and that's it. There's nothing. There's no feedback. You know, I guess, well, I guess maybe that worked. You know, well, there's nothing like sitting in the movie theater with an audience and watching something you've created. You know, it really feels like I'm doing stand-up comedy, or I'm telling a, you know, a story right in front of the audience without actually having to do it. Do I can sit comfortably and hide in my chair? <laughs> and that's an amazing feeling to... You could tell where they were loving it, and you could tell when things were slowed down for them too much. Mm. You know, it was really like you could feel the audience, and now it's just a really uh, amazing experience. We have a whole new generation of current voiceover actors who are really quite spectacular. We were really very privileged to get to talk to, in my opinion, one of the best ones around today, a guy called Billy West. So there's not many people he hasn't voiced, really, has he? I mean, we've got like the likes of Popeye, and we've got Bugs Bunny, we've got Elmer Fudd, all these sort of uh, staple characters. Before we even go into the work that he's 
put a slant on himself. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to be incredibly skilled to be a voice artist because you have to, he's not only mimicking other people, he's actually finding a voice for these other characters, isn't he? Yeah. And a whole range of them in each project. When you were approached for, say, Ren and Stimpy, what was the kind of pitch to you as a performer? Since I had worked with John Chris Feluzzi, however briefly, he just remembered stuff that I used to screw around with. I'd be toretting out characters and all this other stuff. And one of them was that I had this great love for Larry Fine of the Three Stooges. Uh-huh. And he was the one that didn't seem to do anything except now and then say something, but when he said something, it used to split me yeah. in half. And, and I thought it was so beautifully funny and peripheral that I fixated on it so I could do his voice. Mm-hmm. But uh, when John Kay brought Ren and Stimpy around, he had me in mind for that, the Stimpy voice, but we needed to, you know, pitch it up, make it more childlike than, you know, because Larry just sounded like a depressed old Jewish guy. <laughs> Following that, I remembered when uh, Futurama began. I remember being very happy seeing your name in the TV Guide listing. It's like, oh, fantastic. You know, he's in the new Matt Groening show. I only auditioned for a couple of voices originally. But I did audition for Fry, and I auditioned for Bender. You know, you name it, I'll, yeah. I'll go out for anything. I'm a journeyman. And um, it wound up that I got four roles. For the benefit of the listeners, could you maybe talk us through the main four that you bring to Futurama? Yeah, I play Philip J. Fry, 25-year-old pizza delivery boy. <laughs> Man, all this constant exposure to radiation is making me thirsty. <laughs> Um, that voice is basically me when I was 25. I said, you know what? F it. I'm going to just use my own voice. <laughs> and then I did Dr. John Zoidberg. <laughs> Young lady, bring me a sandwich from the dumpster and leave the maggots on us. <laughs> and uh, he was a combination of a couple of voices I remember from my childhood. Uh, one was an actor named Lou Jacoby. And he had kind of a marble mouth and and a guy named George Jessel from American Vaudeville mm-hmm. um, and radio. He had a marble mouth, and I fused the two of them together. So, it was, uh, Professor Hubert Farnsworth, good news, everyone. Bad news. <laughs> um, he's just the, like the Wizard of Oz, doddering old wizard, yeah. professor types, you know, absent-minded and and shaky because he was 147 years old and he's got sagging skin and then there was old Zap Brannigan <laughs> time, space and everything else in between and uh, oh yeah winner of this year's modesty award yeah <laughs> it's like stoic you know Captain Captain's Courageous uh-huh. a big dumb radio announcer from the 60s is there a bit of the grease man in there? yes <laughs> my, my general knowledge of, of... I talk about that but there was a guy floating around for a while <laughs> I mean, everything was like this, and then, that's sort of trailing off after the end of each word. Yeah, um, yeah, I love that stuff, though. But that was—I worked with a lot of big dumb announcers who loved <laughs> far and away above anything else in the effing world was their voice. Yeah, you know, and they wouldn't give birth to it half the time. It'd be like uh, coming up on twenty minutes of eleven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, stalling for time, trying to fill the air, swing with every pitch. It was adorable. I'm very sorry to, to tell you. The Cleveland show has been cancelled. 
This has to be a mean, cruel trick, because as far as I'm aware, it's actually literally against the law to cancel a Seth MacFarlane show. But how is it that if there are three identical shows, that one of them is being cancelled and the other two aren't? It's weird, isn't it? There's that very popular meme on the internet about uh, about MacFarlane's work, and it says, you know, it's about a lovable... His shows are about a lovable, stupid dad... And then obviously a picture of Peter Griffin, Stan Smith and Cleveland Brown. Right. And then, you know, he's married to a hot wife. His daughter hates him. His son's an idiot. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, a, there's a miniature psychopath. It's, you know, very formulaic, you know, if you, if you study it like that. It's completely interchangeable. It's like how I, when I was a child, and again, I, it, it's more forgivable when it's Seth MacFarlane, but when you see like other shows trying to imitate it, like stuff like Full English or... Uh, Crash Canyon and various others where you can tell, okay, that's that version of that character, that's that version of this character, you know? It's such non-creativity. And the, the people who aren't creative are so wearying in the sense of how much they sort of rationalize their creativity and, you know, tell themselves they're coming up with an independent idea when really they're just taking something that already exists and changing it the absolute bare minimum amount it's. I remember when I was very young, I, I really wanted to write a book or a short story or something and thinking, oh, well, how hard can it... I'm talking like five years old, right? So I'm thinking to myself, how hard can it be? And my favorite book at the time was James and the Giant Peach. And I, I have this very clear memory of me going, okay, how about Brian and the really tiny apple? <laughs> <laughs> like that was that was literally the creative process and even at five years old going yeah that's really not even trying <laughs> <laughs> that's why nowadays like, before i release stuff i show it to a lot of people it's it's less the feeling of of ripping someone off or the idea of of being perceived to be ripping someone off you know now i don't know if that attitude is going to help me in the long run, because it seems like these huge successful advertising companies, their bread and butter comes from looking at stuff that students do, successful, inventive, independent short films, and say, okay, let's do a commercial, not hire that director, just do that inventive thing he did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because technically he, while he owns copyright, I guess, on the particular script or the story structure or the music or whatever, he doesn't own copyright on the idea. That's the way they kind of look at it. Mm -hmm. Or the execution, you know, and that's uh, yeah. You can't copyright a style as well. That's that's the that's quite a sad thing as well. Yeah. You know? There's a there's a few times when I've seen big studios have created short films, and I'll have a similar idea in my sketchbook, and I'll mm. be absolutely gutted when I see it. Yeah. Um, obviously, my idea isn't as good as theirs, and I'm too lazy you to get the film made. You see a version of your idea with resources. And uh, proper funding behind it, and a proper crew behind it, and proper execution. It- <laughs> <laughs> Nothing really is that original. Um, mm. You know, everything sort of carries forward. I think Seth MacFarlane knowledgeably <laughs> he plagiarizes his own work. Yeah. You know, self plagiarization. It's uh, yes. One of my favorite interviews and probably one of the most inspirational independent success stories is Signe Bauman, a Latvian animator who uh, recently found success 
through Kickstarter to fund and finish her independent feature, Rocks in My Pockets. Very interesting comedic take on living with depression. Kickstarter, of course, is a hugely prevalent thing in the industry at the moment. And here are some of her thoughts on how she used it to engage with her audience. So it seems that more and more people are now turning to Kickstarter and uh, similar crowdfunding sites to essentially bring the audience in on the process. And uh, I was wondering what your take has been on it so far. And do you feel it's a good fit for what you're doing? I kind of feel that uh, in the in the contemporary world in 2013, um, the this so-called crowdfunding is really a crucial part of actually not only funding, but also of distribution. Because the distribution starts at this stage. You, by logging into Kickstarter and by supporting a project for $10, you can get a, a download. I mean, it's not free, it's $10 download and of the film. What? How else you would call it? It's distribution. I am already selling. It's a film's pre-sale, right? Yeah. I'm already selling the film before it's even finished. And I am finishing the film only because I am able to sell the film before it's finished. Um, so I think it's a pretty groundbreaking concept and, and, and it's a new opportunity for independent filmmakers to kind of have control over this whole horrible process of financing and distribution. It's engaging audiences while the film is in making and committing the audiences. These are not just audiences, they're committed audiences who really are invested in seeing the film. I hope happens more. But anyway, that's my five cents on kickstarting. So Squiggly is not just you and I, Steve. We're something of a growing community a cult, perhaps. We have some wonderful people who have been helping out with the articles, with the reviews, and attending events, interviews on the scene. One of our squiggly writers, Tanya Vincent, was at the recent Rise of the Guardians press junket, and she got to have a few words with its director. So it's kind of hard to categorize this film. It doesn't really seem to have been pushed so much as a seasonal film. You know, it's... it's um, I've, heard, I've heard it being uh, described as the Avengers for kids. Isn't the um, Avengers for kids the Avengers? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yes. going to get some hate mail. Yeah, yes, the Avengers for kids, yes. Anyway, here's Tanya Vincent interviewing the director of Rise of the Guardians, Peter Ramsey. Thank you for talking to us today, Peter Ramsey. It's my pleasure. Everyone at Squiggly Magazine is uh, really excited about Rise of the Guardians. Okay. I've been lucky enough to see it, and it's uh, absolutely fantastic. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was wondering, um, since this is one of your first feature film directorial roles, mm -hmm. if you give us a brief description of your past work. Oh, um, well, let me see. At DreamWorks Animation, where I've been for about, uh, I guess, uh, just around eight years, um, I started there as a story artist. Uh, I did story work on Shrek the Third. And from there, I became head of story on Monsters vs. Aliens. After I completed Monsters vs. Aliens, uh, I directed actually a short based on Monsters vs. Aliens TV Halloween special. And that is what kind of launched me into Rise of the Guardians. They figured I was ready to handle something a little bigger by that time. So there we go. 
The film is based on the original books by William Joyce. Mm -hmm. What elements of that story appeal to you? Uh, basically the idea that you were going to take these characters that, you know, people have actually believed in when they were children. They, they actually, you actually think they're real. They have a real emotional connection with them. And the idea that you could take them and sort of work with people's perceptions of them and people's emotions that are bound up in them and present these new versions to make them look at them in a new way, uh, in a way that they haven't since they were children. That was really appealing to me and, and really interesting. I was wondering, as the director, how closely you worked with the animators and did you give them um, a whole scene to work on or did mm -hmm. they each have an individual character to work on? For the most part, it was individual characters. We would actually have teams of people. There was a Jack team, there was a Pitch team, there was a North team, there was a Tooth Fairy team. So everybody would, you know, we'd have three or four guys who would typically work on that character within a given scene. And yeah, I worked very closely with them uh, every day. Uh, we talked through the, sh you know, talked through the shots. They'd show me different versions. I'd say, you know, I think Jack needs to be a little less nervous here. So calm him down a little bit. Let's put it all in his eyes. And so we would, we were very, very detailed. And I, I tried to talk to the animators as I would to a live action actor. And we talked a lot about the characters' motivations and, and uh, as as much as we could to give real performances. Um, the film has quite uh, dark themes, uh, things like mm. loss of innocence and mm -hmm. feeling a bit alienated from the world. Mm -hmm. Were you ever worried about scaring your audience? No, because, uh, you know, in thinking, uh, the whole theme of our movie is about belief and kind of putting ourselves in the heads of children. And just as we say that children actually believe in these characters, and that's a kind of reality, children experience fear all the time. It's one of the big things you do as a child is deal with fear, recognize it, find a way to try to get past it. That's a big part of life. So we didn't want to downplay that or say that it wasn't important if we were saying that these other characters were real. So that kind of became the spine of our movie was how do you confront it in, in, an, in an upfront way. Well, thank you so much for talking to us at Squiggly today. It's my and pleasure. It's a Christmas classic. So <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Cosgrove Hall. It sounds like a lovely place. It certainly was. <laughs> Being fans of animation, it's quite easy to heap praise on, on animators and, and shows and things like that that we appreciate from our childhood, and that's no exception here when, when looking at Cosgrove Hall. But what Cosgrove Hall did, apart from wonderful programming and what cements its place as what I would call a legendary animation studio is the way that it created an industry around itself and the way that that legacy still continues to this day. As well as brilliant shows such as Danger Mouse, Duckula, Avenger Penguins, BFG, Wind of the Willows, Charlton and the Wheelies, so many fantastic films to mention where there was nothing before mm. Cosgrove Hall came along. And for this reason, I've got an incredible amount of respect and admiration, really, for the interviewee, Brian Cosgrove. Was there much of an animation industry in Manchester? Because it appears on paper that yourself and Mark really created that, that Manchester animation scene well, that's still going. There just wasn't anything. At the time, I think, the only animation for children's television was stuff that the BBC were doing. And, and they were one and two guys who were in little barns down south somewhere producing things like Andy Pandy, mm -hmm. Bill and Ben... Shows like that, the wooden tops. And if you like, we were the ones who started, well, I suppose, an industry, really. Hmm. We did have Thames backing. It was 
that unique time before satellite television arrived. There were only the four major channels, two BBC, two ITV, and the amount of money coming in on advertising for ITV was, well, it was enormous. I think the cliche at the time was some big guy in television in, in ITV said it was a, a license to print money. Yeah. It was. They had millions and millions of pounds coming in on advertising revenue. So it wasn't a hard decision for them to fund an animation company because if they didn't do that, the money would have gone onto tax. Mm. So we started off small, as you said, but then we just expanded the stuff that we produced, started selling around the world, and it was earning the money. So it wasn't a question of going cap in hand for more money. They were asking us at the end of the year as we finished the series, right, lads, what do you want to do now? And we were saying things, well, we, I think we'd like to do Wind in the Willows. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and we, we had a, a master plan. We would work, say, for two years on making shorts. And then the plan was to then let the team work on a special half-hour special or something like that. Hmm. It didn't quite work out like that. It worked out on the model side. They would do a couple of series of shorts, and then they would do a, a feature film like uh, Cinderella or The Pied Piper Family. Mm -hmm. But what, what happened on the draw side was that we did Danger Mouse, and the marketplace just wanted more and more and more of it. We certainly went over 100 episodes of Danger Mouse. Now that tied us down to doing shorts for quite a number of years mm. before the drawn side got the chance to make a special and we made Roald Dahl's BFG film I think that was about 80 odd minutes I think yeah. a feature film so it was you know, good times really one of the things if you find yourself in a, a lucky situation where you've got steady work what happens is when you finish the show your team have, have developed their skills and the next thing they do they want to better it so there's a steady progression of quality as the years go by. It, it wasn't just us. It tended to happen in every studio that's worked in animation. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the artists that we employed when they first started, their drawing talent hadn't fully developed. But if you're drawing 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you get better and better and better. And that was one of the exciting things about the years we all spent together. We had a highly talented group of people, you know, by the time it came towards the end of the company. So we've reached the end of our exclusive Squiggly Animation Podcast sampler. Thanks very much to all of the guests who featured on this collection. John Cars, Christina Reed, Peter Lord, Robert Morgan, Sam Fell, Chris Butler, John Chris Felusi, Barry Purvis, Bill Plimpton, Gendy Tartkovsky, Billy West, Signe Bauman, Peter Ramsey and Brian Cosgrove. So yes, thank you once again to all of them for giving us the time originally. And you can listen to all of their interviews, the full versions by subscribing to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. We're on iTunes. You can come find us on squiggly.com. I think everything's pretty clearly marked over there. And as well as the interviews, we have all sorts of features, competitions, online get-togethers, uh, reviews, news, all that good stuff to keep you updated and plugged into the animation industry at large. So if you want more out of us, 
Don't forget to subscribe to the hours upon hours of animation podcast content completely free because that's how much we like you. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. Music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. Uh, The compilation was edited and produced by Ben Mitchell. Thanks for listening, and here's to two more years. 